Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley of PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. That was the voice of Marty Oakley, who passed last April. She was the original producer and warrior of this program and advocated for the vulnerable. She will always remain in our hearts. Rest in peace, Marty. Good evening. I'm Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice, where we speak the truth about the risk of trusting without verifying regarding hospice and the medical profession in general. Knowledge is power. Hospice was originally created in 1967 by Dame Cicely Saunders for the actively dying to minimize pain for terminally ill patients with a life expectancy of six months or less. But today, people who would live longer with medication and proper care are being hoodwinked into enrolling, giving too much pain medication, even when they may not be in pain, and their death hastened with drugs, starvation, and dehydration. The last chapter of their life terminated without knowledge, consent, or compassion, and certainly not peacefully. Hospice at one time had a place in society, but have ruined their reputation, and I think there may be some that are pro-life, but I don't know of any. You have the right to enroll or to refuse to enroll, and just because somebody says you qualify for hospice doesn't mean you have to accept it or trust that is in your best interest. Personally, I believe it isn't. You can also revoke hospice at any point if they aren't following proper care for you or your loved one. They're being paid lots of money to care for your loved one. And remember, they work for you, not the other way around. Everyone deserves and is entitled to compassion, respect, and protection, and they have the right to be free from abuse, neglect, and mistreatment. But that isn't happening. And there are various types of abuse that you need to be aware of, and don't sit back and turn the other cheek if you see it. There can be verbal abuse of our loved ones, and that's disparaging or derogative language towards patients or their families. It can be mental abuse that involves humiliation, harassment, and threats. And many of the families that I've spoken to, as well as myself, were lied to and our concerns were dismissed. And often, family members are removed from the room by security because they question the staff and they're barred from returning. The medical records will say things like the daughter doesn't care if her mother is in pain or the daughter was confrontational, combative when the staff wanted to give medication or the family just simply wanted to give sips of water to their loved one. And you won't know how they've betrayed you unless you see the medical records. This happens and it is abuse of the patient and the family who is trying to protect their loved one. And I can't say it enough, and I'll probably say it several times, it is important to acquire medical records while your loved one is alive. You can see what meds they're given and how frequently they're being given the medication. There's also physical abuse that can happen, and that can be just like slapping, pinching, or roughing them up when they're giving them a bath or rolling them over, and just in general not being gentle. Sometimes it can be the corporate type punishment where a patient is chemically or physically confined to a bed or chair with constraints, as in the case of Lisa's dad, Bill Papania, 
who was put on public display strapped to a chair. Negligence can lead to physical harm, mental anguish, or death, and it can include dehydration, malnutrition, falls, wandering residents, misdiagnosis, incorrect prescriptions, inadequate medical attention, and over-drugging. For an example, a patient needs to go to the restroom. Nobody responds when they request help, so they try to get up on their own. They fall, and many times they're chastised for getting up, but what are they supposed to do? They have dignity, and they don't want to wet on themselves, and nobody came. Human rights are dismissed. They're just too much trouble. It's easier to put a catheter in. Another neglect is ignoring bed sores to the point that the wound is to the bone and the family has no clue and is devastated when or if they find out. That's physical abuse as well as neglect. Hospice is supposed to effectively manage symptoms to minimize pain, but most often they render a one-size-fits-all even when the patient isn't in pain. And I don't believe anybody should be in pain, and managing pain is a good thing, but I have seen personally and heard too many stories where the loved ones are not in pain and they are given a one-size-fits-all. One day your loved one is eating, drinking, and talking, and all of a sudden they're sleeping all the time. They say it's a dying process. No, it's the drugging process. And now they are dying because they're dying of an overdose and dehydration. If you gave those same drugs to a strong, healthy person that's not ill at all in the same dosages and frequencies that they are given to our loved ones, that person would die. So how can it not be premeditated murder? Any abuse or neglect should be reported to the hospice administrator or a hospital, and you should not be gaslighted into believing you are overreacting. You have a duty and a right to protect your loved one. And I've learned personally, if you have a gut feeling about something, something doesn't look right to you, it probably isn't, and your suspicions are correct, and you need to report it and do something. I wished that my sister and I had not ignored the signs that we saw in regards to my mom and trying to take her to a hospital. So gaslighting is one of the subjects we're also going to be discussing tonight, and that's a practice of psychologically manipulating someone into questioning their own sanity, memory, or power of reasoning. It's a form of emotional and psychological manipulation where one person seeks to gain control and power over another by making them question what they believe or see, and it undermines their sense of reality or trust. Medical gaslighting occurs when a health care provider dismisses your concerns about the well-being of the patient in the hospital, nursing home, or hospice. Your concerns are insignificant to them, and they are ignored while you are lied to. Tonight's guest is going to go more into that. So I want to just give you a couple of resources, and then my guest will join us. There's a Facebook group, Murdered by Hospice, which has people that have been through the horrors of losing someone to hospice, and it's a very supportive group. An excellent book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, was written by former hospice respiratory therapist Michelle Young-Dewers 
who chose patience over the corrupt hospice and profits. And halovoice.org provides information and a life-affirming medical proxy document that everyone should have now. And don't wait until someone or yourself is in the hospital. Assign somebody that you trust that has your best interest and doesn't want you gone. My guest tonight is Dr. Mara Carpell, who is a clinical psychologist who has been working with adults and specializes with seniors, caregivers, and veterans. So she is well aware of what is happening with the elderly. She is the author of the bestseller, The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age. And she hosts a blog talk radio show also, which is called Dr. Mara Carpell in Your Golden Years. And she's a regular blogger on Medium. So for the past several years, she advocated for her mother, Maxine's health care, and her nursing home care, and she was able to save her mom when the doctors tried to push her into hospice when her mom wasn't dying. She organized a virtual family council in the long-term care community where her mom lived to ensure family members had a voice in improving the quality of life for residents. Sadly, Maxine passed on October the 25th, 2023, at the age of 94, but she lived until it was her natural time to pass. Tonight, Mara will share how the doctor tried to gaslight her and her brother and how she was able to stand strong against him in gaslighting tactics, and she saved her mom for another two wonderful years where she was able to make memories. So with that, I would like to turn this over to Dr. Mara Carpell to tell you more about what happened. So Mara, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Marcia, for having me. And thank you for everything that you're doing. This is really important. You're quite welcome, and I'm glad that we're able to do this. So do you want to talk about your mom and what happened? Sure, yeah. So, you know, you said a lot of things that really resonated with me, um, both during the time that my mom was in the hospital and they were trying to gaslight us as well as um, when she was in the nursing home because a lot of the things that you mentioned also happened in nursing homes. So um, I want to first say, you know, advocacy is love. And um, at times, doctors do not like when we advocate for our loved ones, but we're doing it out of love. And about, it's about two and a half years ago now, um, my mom had been living in an assisted living, and she ended up in the hospital because she had an increase of her congestive heart failure, which caused fluid to fill up in her lungs. And she, when she ended, when she got to the hospital, she ended up needing 100% oxygen and a mask. So um, she had been in the hospital about a month prior um, for an aspiration pneumonia, and she had fluid in her lungs. And when they gave her a diuretic, uh, it cleared her lungs, and she went back to assisted living. Um, so she had the same doctor when she went back this time 
we didn't realize that he actually didn't work for the hospital but was on contract to follow all of the residents of her facility, nursing home and independent, I mean, assisted living and independent, anytime they went to that hospital. He didn't know that. And um, <clears throat> so he said, I'm going to give her the same dosage of the diuretic. Um, after several days, it was not clearing out her lungs. It was staying the same. So at that point, she was up in, in a hospital up in New York. I'm here in Texas. I flew up there, and we would have phone conferences with the doctor. My brother and I would have phone conferences with the doctor every morning after he saw my mom, and visiting hours were only in the afternoon, so we would go in the afternoon. And he kept saying after a while, your mother's not getting better, and um, but it, sometimes he would say, she's not dying either. It's a 50-50 chance that she'll get better. And then the next moment she would say, he would say, no, she's dying. And um, I think that she might need to be in hospice. And after several more days, he said, she needs to be in hospice. So at one point, after about, um, I guess about a week and a half or so, the, uh, the cardiology team, who was run by my mom's cardiologist for several years, um, but he wasn't there himself. He had a team. So every day it was a different cardiologist on his team that would see her. And at one point they said, we're going to double the diuretic. So they doubled her diuretic, and apparently... She didn't have a good reaction to that. It caused her heart to race and her blood pressure to drop when she got all of that diuretic at one point. So the doctor told us um, she can't she can't do it. She can't handle it. Um, I went to see her the next day, and next morning he said, she's not doing well. We need to think about hospice. Again, he just kept... This went on... For, she was in the hospital for a month. So... I saw her that afternoon, and my mom was hungry. She was asking me to bring her food because she didn't like the hospital food. She was telling me that she was bored. When am I getting out of here? I want to go to rehab. She was interested in what I was doing, why I wasn't attending some events that I was supposed to attend that she remembered. Um, she was interested in how everybody in in my life, my friends, were doing. Um, I've worked with people who were dying. They are not interested in what's going on in the world. When somebody's dying, they tend to turn inward. They're not exactly. asking questions about, yeah. <laughs> They're also not hungry. They're not thirsty. Right. She's thirsty. Um, and they're not telling you that they're bored. Absolutely. So so in the morning he would tell us, oh, I was there at 7.30 this morning and your mother was so out of it. And I was like, 7.30 in the morning? My mother was never awake at 7.30 in the morning. If they saw me, if he came to see me at 7.30 in the morning and decided I was dying because I was out (laughs) of it. Right, you're going to be out of it too. Sure. Yeah. So... You know, and I, 
every day I would see her and she would be like this. And I would say to the doctor, you know, I see her in the afternoon. She seems really awake and she's alert. Oh, well, she's just, you know, people who are dying, they rally in the afternoon. So everything uh, I said against his point, he would make reasons for. So I saw her that afternoon after he told us that she couldn't handle the extra diuretics. Um, and when I got there, they were giving her an IV of something that wasn't what what I usually saw when I went in the afternoon. And I asked the nurse, what is that? And she said, oh, that's the second dose of the diuretic. So I asked her, what do you mean? Um, she said, well, she couldn't handle the, the double dose in, all at once, so the cardiologist decided to split it up into two separate doses. So they had not stopped the order. They were just trying it a different way. Oh, he also told us that that morning... Um, she was gasping for air and requesting the BiPAP, which blow, which forces the air into your lungs, and that's what they, they gave her at night. Well, during the day, she used a regular mask. Um, when I came in, she was wearing the regular mask, and I asked the nurse, did she need the BiPAP this morning? And the nurse said, well, she didn't really need it. She wasn't gasping for air. It's just that she didn't sleep very well last night, and I think she associates sleep with the BiPAP, so she asked for the BiPAP to help her sleep. So he had made it sound like she needed it when, in fact, it was just that it brought her comfort. Um, so I was very excited. That I asked the nurse, you know, how is she doing with the second dose of the diuretic, and the nurse, um, very young nurse, she said, oh, she's doing well. She doesn't have any, you know, heart's not racing. Her blood pressure didn't drop. She's doing fine. Um, she seemed fine to me. She was, again, talking and um, complaining that she wanted to leave. And I was bringing her yogurt every day, which is what she wanted to eat. And I was bringing her different drinks because she was tired of the apple juice they gave her every day. So I would stop and buy her something from Starbucks, one of their different iced teas. And um, I got very excited, and I called my brother, who was downstairs at the hospital. We couldn't be there in the room at the same time. And I told him what the nurse said. I said, you know, very excited. Hey, guess what? She did have a second dose of the diuretic, and she's handling it really well. She wasn't gasping for air. She just wanted to read the BiPAP to help her to sleep. And he said, oh, well, I'm going to text the doctor. Maybe he doesn't know this, which I thought that was weird. Wouldn't the doctor know it? Um, within five minutes of texting the doctor, the nurse came in to me shaking and very upset. The doctor had called her and yelled at her over the phone. And she said to me, why did you tell the doctor what I told you? Uh, I, I was confused. I was, well, why wouldn't I tell the doctor what you told me? And I just asked you how she was doing. She said, well, you need to go downstairs and, and meet with your brother and call the doctor. He wants to talk to the two of you. So I went downstairs. We put him on speakerphone, and the doctor immediately yelled at us, I am the captain of the ship. 
you do not ask anybody else but me wow. how your mother is doing. How arrogant. Jerry, um, uh, at that point, you know, we were kind of under his spell because in the mornings when we talked to him, he was very sweet and he sounded very caring. And he, we would say, you know, what doctor calls you every day? Well, I mean, I think the doctor called us every day for a phone conference because he wanted to keep control of us, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I, I'd like to point so, out um, something yeah. that a lot of times, you know, because her regular doctor is, was not seeing her, and this is a hospital doctor. They're, they're calling them now hospitalists, and he works there at the hospital. He doesn't know your mother's background, and, you know, I hate to be cruel and say, but, you know, he doesn't really care. He's probably got an awful lot of patients. And there is no mm-hmm. compassion. It is very rare for you to be able to find a doctor at the hospital that really cares about the, the actual patient. And that's what you were facing. He did not want your mother to get better. He wanted to be right. I told you she's dying. To be she right. needs to go to hospice. He didn't want her to get better. No. He was very arrogant. At that moment, I I started to, he, the, his facade started to crack when he yelled at us like that. Um, and when I went back up to the room, the nurse didn't want to let me in. She called security because we had, we had special permission to also have a private caregiver in the room with my mom um, to help her to manage to hold things because she had trouble picking things up or even ringing the call bell. So they gave a special, you know, um, special order that an aide could be there at the same time as a family member. And when I went up there, she said, you can't be in the room because you already have an aide in the room. And I, you know, said, well, we have permission. So my brother came up and with the security and they called head of security who said, yes, they have special permission. But she was so upset that I had gotten her into trouble, quote, unquote, by telling the doctor the good news. Mm-hmm. Um, he said to us on the phone, I, at that moment, he said, I don't want you talking to anybody else because I do not want you to think that your mother is getting out of here alive. Your mother is not getting out of here alive. That's real compassion, um, isn't it? Yep. Now, he also never spoke to my mother. You know, having that aid, and I would recommend this to everybody, having that aid in the hospital from morning till late afternoon when we got there, they were the fly on the wall. The doctor didn't even notice them, thought they were part of the furniture, didn't pay attention to the aid, probably didn't think he understood, they un- that she understood what he was doing, and she, the aid would report back to us and tell us what the doctor said to the nurse, and we would ask, did the doctor ever ask my mom how she was feeling? Did he ever talk to her? Never talked to her. He never talked to her. <laughs> so wow, he like she's not a person. did not know any. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the next day um, we had our phone conference, and he said to us, look, um, I'm not going to increase the diuretic because I took a seminar one time uh, about how to work with elderly people 
which, like, red flag. You took a seminar one time, so now you're an expert or working with elderly mm-hmm. people. Um, with somebody you don't even know? Said, I, with someone you don't even know. And uh-huh. he said, what I learned is with medication and with elderly people, you start low and you go slow. And I knew that expression, having worked in nursing homes with doctors, and I said, doesn't that mean you start low and you gradually increase? And he, again, got angry. He said, well, I'm not going to do that. That's up to the cardiologist. But the cardiologist had done that, and it stopped. They stopped it. We thought the cardiologist chose to stop it. We found out later that he had blocked the order. He had blocked the cardiologist's order. So this went on for another few days when he finally said, I'm calling in the team. I'm going to have you talk to the social worker and the chaplain because I really want you to consider hospice. So I reluctantly went to this meeting with my brother and the social worker and the hospice chaplain where they tried to convince us to put my mom in hospice that what he wanted to do was keep her on the low dose of the diuretic in an actual hospice building and eventually her heart wouldn't be able to take it anymore, having to have that much oxygen, and she would die. And he did not want to increase it because it would kill her. So that made no sense to me. Um, she's going to die. Right. If she's going to go to, if you're going to send her to hospice, then what you're saying is she's going to die. And I can assure you, in hospice, you're going to die much quicker than you would if you didn't um, enroll in hospice. So why not test this out? And yeah, wasn't yep. that what your mother wanted? He, he, she absolutely wanted it. She wanted to get out. She, my mother was someone who. So much loved life. She was in a wheelchair. Well, at that point, she wasn't in a wheelchair. She ended up in a wheelchair because she was in the hospital for a month and they never did physical therapy. But Mm -hmm. um, she, she needed help walking. She had trouble with her speech because of a prior minor stroke. In spite of all of that, she treasured life. She was very alert and oriented. She enjoyed visiting with friends. She enjoyed her family visiting. She enjoyed going to concerts that they had in the facility and listening to music. She enjoyed eating. She enjoyed breakfast. That was her favorite meal. All of that made life worth living for her. She was not ready to go. And when they were... When they were meeting with us, it was very clear that I was considered someone who was living in a fantasy world, that I was living in, uh, the you know, rainbows and unicorns, that I couldn't accept that my mom was dying and that they were there to help me to accept it. And, you know, my brother was kind of caught in the middle. He didn't know what to think. But I was like, you know, I know I was so angry. And I said to them, I know that you think I'm crazy. I know that you're trying to make me seem like the crazy one here. But I know my mom, and I know that she's not dying, and she needs to be given a chance to live. I also know the reality. I know the reality. She was 92 years old. 
there is a chance that even increasing her diuretic wouldn't work, that she might die, but eventually she would die anyway because we all die. But she deserved a chance. Absolutely. You know, I, you know, finally at one point, a friend of mine who's a a nurse here in Texas and she works in home care with elderly patients, she called me to check in to see how my mom was doing and I told her what was going on. And I, I said to her, the doctor says that the increase of diuretic might kill her, but he's also saying that she's going to die. What is the downside of trying the increase of the diuretic? And she said to me, there is no downside. You're absolutely right. And is he a cardiologist? And I said, no, he's not. And she said, well, you need to have the cardiologist take over the case. So that's what we did. I got my brother to, he was in contact with the cardiologist, and the cardiologist who ran the team was knew my mom for seven years. He really knew her, and he was one of those doctors who really does care. He had just been getting the information that she was dying, so he didn't know what was really going on. And he sent that, my brother sent that message, what would be the downside And he wrote back in 15 minutes, there is no downside. If your mother wants to do this, I'm going to to double her diuretic and give her an enhancing medication. And we said, she wants to do it. So he did it that day. And um, by that evening, she, I think it was by that evening, that she only only needed 50% oxygen instead of 100%. And the next morning, the doctor went to see her, and he called his normal time, and he said to us, I don't know what's going on with your mom. She's gotten so much worse. She's so thirsty, and she's so drained. And my brother said, well, we we had the diuretic increase. So, of course, she's thirsty, and she feels drained because, you know, now she's got to pee all the time. Um he said, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. You, your mother hasn't suffered up until now, but now you're making her suffer, and I want your permission to, to block that order. Um, I completely trust that cardiologist, so I said to him, absolutely not. This is a cardiology issue, and the cardiologist will be making that decision. And... Um, I told my brother, I am not going to any more of these morning conferences because now he's just trying to manipulate us. And Mm -hmm. he, you know, my brother said, I'm going to keep going because I want to know what's going on. I said, fine, but I'm not going to be there. And we emailed the cardiologist. We told him my mom was more thirsty, blah, blah, blah. He said, of course, she's on a high dose of diuretic, but it's only temporary is your mother suffering? Does she want to continue doing this? So my mother, I said, Mom, are you feeling uncomfortable? She said, yes. I said, well, you know, this is because your cardiologist, who she trusted very much, increased the diuretic to get the fluid out of your lungs. Um, it's temporary. It's, there's no guarantee that it'll work, but it's the only possibility that it'll work. 
Are you there, Marsha? Suddenly I don't hear you. Uh-oh. Hello? Okay, everything went quiet. Marsha, are you there? Oh, hello. I think we lost the connection. I'm going to call back in. Mara, are you there? Can you hear me? Okay. Can, I can you hear, hear me? You now? I have no clue what happened. Um, we got completely cut off. Okay. I got. I okay. heard it get silent, so I kind of have an idea of where I was. <laughs> Okay. Um, Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm almost done I with the to... story. Um, okay. So, so the cardiologist took over at that time, right? He took over, and we asked him, you know, is you know, we told him the his symptoms. He said that was the common symptom of being on such a high dose of diuretic, and that we should check in with my mom if it was okay with her. And I did, and she trusted that cardiologist. So I told her that he that she was having those symptoms because of what he did, with, and that it wasn't necessarily going to work, but it was the only chance that it would work. And was she suffering? And she said no. Did she want to continue? And she said, I want to try. So can you still hear me? I can. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was it. We told him, we told the, my brother told the doctor, our mother wants to continue this. He said, I don't, oh yeah, on that call the day before, he said, um, I, I, my brother was trying to appease him and said, we know it might not work and she might not die, but we want to give it. He said, well, that's good because, um, my job, my number one job is to get you to give up hope. That's a so horrible I, thing to say. I, you know, I knew, I got, I, you know, I had his number at that point. I knew where he was coming from. He just, you know, he really didn't, he did not want her to live at that point. He would, and I don't know what the reason was. I don't know if it was his ego because obviously he had a very high ego when he said he was the captain of the ship and he just wanted to be right or or if there was something, you know, worse going on. But my mom was off of an oxygen mask within five days of increasing her diuretic and she only needed that little nose cannula. But he tried to get revenge because... On Monday morning, we, my brother got a call from the social worker saying that the doctor signed my, the orders to have my mom discharged, and if we didn't have a place to bring her for rehab, they would, they would place her. Now, this was in Westchester, New York, and my brother lives in Connecticut, and we, our plan was to move her to a facility, um, a rehab facility, and have her stay there 
um, and a nursing facility, one of the best that we had ever seen right near my brother. But it was Monday morning, and they had not, the admissions person had been away during the weekend, so we needed an extra day to get her admitted. Plus, the cardiologist had said he wanted to try her on the oral diuretic for a day to find out what dose for her to leave with. So, so he, he wanted to had kick. A, he, so he wanted, wanted to kick to her, her out. out because you won't put her in hospice and you won't accept that she's dying. Exactly. Wow. And at that point, yeah. she was. And he told us, if you bring your mom to rehab, she's going to die within seven days. So well, you we had a petitioned Medicare. We proved him wrong. Um, we petitioned Medicare to give her two more days to go against the doctor's order. She stayed in the hospital for two more days so we could get her admitted, uh, you know, admitted to the place that we wanted her to go to. And she went on to live for two years after that with no cardiology issues after that. The, the cardiologist had, yeah, cardiologist had told the doctors at the facility she moved to what dosage of diuretics she should be on. They constantly monitored it. Um, she went on a low-salt diet. She had lost about 30 pounds in water weight. And uh, she didn't have even a slight bit of fluid in her lungs. And she had had um, arrhythmia, and that went away. Like, weirdly, she had no arrhythmias during those two years. And she and that, made new friends. I, I want to say that had you not been a rebel and had you not advocated and stood up against the gaslighting, you would have lost your mom two years earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, they, I mean, they do. They, they lie to you. They tell you things. And like he had already made his mind up that your mom was going to die. And he wanted you yes. to accept it. Just, I, I love this story, Mara. I, I have, you know, when you and I talked earlier, it just does my heart good because that's what we all want to do is to save our loved ones and to not listen to the naysayers when they say it's over, your loved one is going to die. They have the mm-hmm. right to try whatever methodology or prescription medication or natural medication that they want to try. That is their right. This is their chapter. It is their life. And as you said, he never spoke to her. He always would, you know, talk around her or ask you or ask your brother. Mm -hmm. It's what your mother wants. That's what it's about, what, what they, what the patient wants. And we need to know, they need to be clear about what it is they want, and we need to follow their wishes. Well, he never even asked us what we thought my mother wanted. <laughs> he, you know, we, even if my mother couldn't speak for herself, we were the health care proxies. He never asked us, what does your mother what want? What you wanted, yes. Um, yep. We have a couple of callers on here. Do you feel like taking a couple of calls? Sure. Okay. Um, 928, uh, you've been on a while waiting to say something. If you'd like to say something now, you are alive and on the air. There's no beauty, you can easily live. 
on this Spartan diet. Say again. Okay. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Like the ptarmigan and the hare, the weasel also changes color. But with winter finally comes to an end. Okay, that sounds like a... That sounds like an ad. (laughs) Okay, got it. Okay, um, area code um, 402. Are you a recording or are you a real person? Area code 402. I'm a real person. I'm a real person. They've been treated like no one by the medical system, and... I was wondering, I am almost afraid to say much in public because of the um, retaliation I and my family have suffered. Um, Could Mm. either one of you possibly call me at this same number when the show is over or at a time more convenient? Sure. My loved one is in a similar situation. God bless you. Mm. you. Your mother is? No, it's Your mother is in a situation like that? My husband. Your husband. Can you hear okay. me? Mm. Yeah. I can hear you. Yes, And ma'am. I don't want to say much because this little I have said, I've been threatened with gag orders and all kinds of things. So. Wow. I there, there is, unfortunately, a, a lot of third-party interloper interfering, interfering people involved, if you know what I mean. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yes. 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 Okay, so I yes, I, I have your number. I have your number, and um, if you'd like to continue to listen to the program, that'd be fine. And um, yeah. I will share your number with Mara, and um, okay. we both can call you and, you know, see which one of us can help you, um, you know, make some decisions or help you out with your husband. So I would greatly appreciate absolutely. it, yes. We got mm-hmm. you, and, and I'll I'll pass that on tomorrow too. Now should okay. I press one? Thank you. Still continue to listen. Oh, you can continue Thanks. to listen if you'd like. That'd be great. Okay, I I'm just gonna that. I'm gonna Thank mute you, and, but I have okay. your number here. It, it won't be this evening, obviously, because it's gonna be late. But um, oh, tomorrow no sometime. That would okay, be fine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I'm gonna mute you now. Okay. Um, And if anybody else has a question or a comment that they want to make, just um, select one on your phone, and then you'll be put in the queue. I'll see that you are raising your hand to speak. So, Mm -hmm. um, But, Mara, you're absolutely right, because if you don't advocate for your loved ones, nobody else is going to do it. Nobody. You know, Advocacy is really, really important, whether your loved one is dealing with a similar situation in the hospital, which, you know, my mom went back to the hospital another time for a different issue, and I had to kind of push there as well. Um, The ageism is so powerful in the medical community and also in society. So when doctors talk about, well, you know, your loved one is this age, so they really can't handle this, any kind of medical treatment, that's ageism because the fact is that uh, medical decisions should not be based on a person's age. It should be based on their medical situation. And there may be things that 
prevent them from getting the treatment due to other medical situations, not age. So um, that part, you know, when people go into the hospital, an elderly person goes into the hospital, they face that constantly. And in a nursing home or assisted living, their family has to advocate because even in the best place, my my mom was, you know, I've worked in many nursing homes, and she ended up, thankfully, in one of the nicest places I've ever seen. But still, if I had not really pushed for certain things, her quality of life would not have been at the level that it was. I was constantly having a call about issues, and um, and I'm sure I was labeled as one of those problem family members. So, you know, when I worked in nursing homes, I remember everybody talked about the problem family members, and I remember saying in in meetings, well, when my parents are elderly, if they end up in a nursing home, I'm going to be a problem family member. Mm-hmm. Because well, but it's, um, it's combative. What they call us, and I've been called that as well. I'm okay with that. What they call us is mm-hmm. combative. We're argumentative and we're combative because we are trying to save our loved one. And it's like a gentleman you had on your show on Sunday it's done mm-hmm. from love. Absolutely. That's why we do it. And, and, and you know, combative sounds like you're cursing at them and you're threatening them. I never did any of that. And that's actually, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. But my guest on my show on Sunday, Dr. Watson, he's, you know, he's a medical doctor and he advised families stay strong but don't yell and curse, even if you feel like it, because then mm-hmm. you're written off. Um, you, right. have you have to, to take the emotion. Calm yourself down. Yeah, you have to take the mm-hmm. emotion out of it, even though at that time we're very emotional, because you want to speak to them with uh, strength and let them know that this is what I expect. And, you know, like I said earlier, they work for us. Whether it's hospice mm-hmm. or a hospital, they work for us, and we need to be protecting our loved one and making sure that what they Absolutely. want is done. And the site that I had mentioned earlier today, um, halovoice.org, has a medical power of attorney form that you can go on their website and download it, but you want to make sure in that form that you assign someone who you trust to follow through with your wishes and who will advocate for you and, you know, adjust that form to what you want it to say. You know, if you don't, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't want to be put on, you know, an oxygen, you know, then then you say that, a ventilator, that's what you want to say. You don't want to take remdesivir then you put that in your documentation. This is your document that you put, and you say what you want done. And the other thing is that that is not, you do not need a medical power of attorney unless you cannot speak for yourself. And your mother could speak for herself, but they weren't talking to her, which meant you and your brother had to intercede to protect your mother. Right, right. And you know, I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought up the medical power of attorney or healthcare proxy. 
Um, those are really, really important, and a lot of people are feel uncomfortable um, dealing with those things when they're when they're well. But you really need it. Um, you need right. to tell somebody what you would want because if you don't tell someone what you would want, if they're in the position of be of being your voice at some point, um, they're going to do what they want <laughs> because they don't know what you want. They're going to have well, to try to gonna, figure out. Well, they may do what they think you want, but it's right. just like um, the DNR. If you if you sign a do not resuscitate, and the doctor will say to the person if if they don't have one and they're trying to talk you into it, gaslight you into it. Well, if something happens and they quit breathing, we're going to beat on their chest and we're going to break their ribs. And you don't want us to do that, do you? Look how frail she is. You don't want us to. That doesn't mean that that's the only thing it can be. If they pass out because they swallow a you know an, an apple seed or something then you don't want to be brought back to? I mean, it, it mm-hmm. doesn't just, mm-hmm. you know, if you pass out on the floor, it doesn't mean you want, you know, you don't want oxygen just until you come back to. So that thing of we're going to crush your life, they have paddles and maybe they do break a rib or two, but that might save your life. Nobody has the right to force you into signing a do not resuscitate for yourself or for your loved one. Now, and it, you know, and every circumstance is different. If if you know somebody is, you know, not going to live, and it is at their end of their life, and they, you know, die in their sleep, and not drugged, but they die in their sleep, then yes, you're not going to want to come in and, you know, bring them back to life because you know that's their time, that's God's time, and you let that go. But mm-hmm. if something out of the norm happens. You follow what their wishes are. If they want to live, you do whatever it takes, whatever procedure is required. There was right. a lady in um, the Netherlands, and she had said, if I ever get dementia and I don't know who I am and I don't know who you are, I don't want to live like that. Just kill me. Just put me out of my misery mm-hmm. and kill me. Well, she got dementia, and her family, she had said that, and they're like, okay, well, you know, we're going to do that. They gave her tea laced with something that was supposed to just kind of, you know, calm her down. But it didn't. It didn't work. And when they came towards her with a syringe, she started screaming, you're going to kill me. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. They held her down, injected her, and she died. Apparently somebody there wow. had the wherewithal to say that that was wrong and they took it to a judge and the judge went with against the person that said they shouldn't have done that and he said she said if any this ever happened to me i don't want to live i want to die so you really need to be careful what you say and put it in writing put it in your medical power of attorney document what you do want and what you don't want and don't be so quick to give up on yourself well, the other part of that is that you have a right to change your mind. <laughs> Even if you've written, you've sat before an attorney, you signed a form that said no heroic means, I don't want a feeding tube, I don't want whatever. And then when the time comes that you're really, you know, when you're sitting in an attorney's office, usually you're well and you're a lot younger. And you can't imagine even enjoying life 
um, when you have so many disabilities. But when you're in that situation, if you're, you know, still of sound mind, even if there's a written proxy, you can say, no, that's not what I want anymore. Change that. Um, Right. Don't let me go. (laughs) But wouldn't it be better if you just didn't say it in the first place? I mean, you know, we're, I don't know, you know, what age our listeners are, you know, and what people will listen to this, but does it really matter? I mean, if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, and even if you're in your 90s, your mom was 90 and she wanted to live. So if you just don't put it in there, you know, don't say, don't resuscitate me. Yes, I want you to do whatever is required to save my life. Um, when my dad passed, he was here. I had medical power of attorney, and I knew he, you know, he he was at that point where it was over. And you know, they when I called nine one one, he stayed in my home. I did not allow hospice to kill him like they did my mother. And when he was in the house, and he died, we called nine one one, and they said, "Do you have? Does he have a DNR?" No. First thing they did when they got here, they asked the question again, and I showed them the medical power of attorney, and I said, it's over. I mean, it, you know, there's nothing you can do for him. It, it is over. And they accepted what I said. Mm-hmm. So even though he mm-hmm. didn't have a DNR, they didn't go in there and try to beat on his chest or bring him back to life. The, the right. people, you know, right. some people have common sense. So for well, me, no, signing are... a DNR puts you at risk. Well, there, you know, the one thing that people also need to know is they can be extremely specific. So they can say, um, if if there if the procedure is done and um, there's a good chance, there's a you know a more than fifty percent chance or more than ten percent chance, whatever they decide that I will come back and I'll be able to, you know, breathe on my own and speak and eat, um, then I want it. But if there's a chance that, a higher chance that I'll be left just, you know, lying here unconscious, I don't want it. I mean, they can be really specific. Right, um, And they can be. change it. as, And you can change it as time goes on. You could say, you know what, I changed my mind. I mean, the weird well, thing is, when my mom was in the hospital, people were asking, well, what does her health care proxy say? You know, we were asked that outside, not not by the hospital, but we were asked outside. And I said, it doesn't matter what her health care proxy said because she's conscious and aware and she's able to tell me what she wants right now. So if exactly. I go back and look at her health care proxy and she told me, you know, just let me die, I'm not going to just let her die when she's saying to me now, I want to try. I mean, that's murder. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. um, You know. And I think you and I have talked about this um, earlier, is the value. Nobody has the right to say that someone else's life has no value. If that person feels they have value, like, you know, you said your mom was in a wheelchair for a while after that, um, because, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't rehabilitate her and, you know, she couldn't walk again. But she was in a wheelchair. But she was content. I mean, would she like to be out, you know, walking in the field of pastures? Of course she would. But she was mm-hmm. okay with what she had, you know, with 
the way her life was. My mom, towards the end, was in a chair. She was chair-bound most of, you know, the last few years. That was okay. She was a happy person. She enjoyed watching TV. She enjoyed talking to people. You know, her life had value. She loved her family. Her life had value. And nobody has the right to take away and say somebody's life has no value. You have no right. Well, that brings us that brings us to that issue of ageism and the um you know, the medical community um has decided in a lot a lot of doctors, hospitals, nursing homes that it's too expensive to treat somebody who is elderly. It, you know, um, it is. They don't. They don't contribute. They don't work, so they don't contribute financially. Um, and so it's it's more cost effective for people to die. And um, they don't see the value of an elderly person who, you know, those two years that my mom lived, she she actually. Um, had quite a bit of value because there are people who worked in the facility who loved my mom like a mother or a grandmother. When she passed, finally, they were crying because they felt that she she saw them, she cared about them, she asked them mm-hmm. questions about their life. She made friends in the in the facility. She made new friends at 92 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and she created she created value just by being there. Right. Um, so how? But but they look at the financial aspect of it that it's going to cost us money to treat her. She's not working. She's not contributing and paying taxes. Well, um, and it's taking money. You know, she's getting Medicare. Taking Medicare money. is having yeah, to pay yeah. for her, and it's cheaper to get rid of her than it is to care for her, and that's why I do my program, because it is a betrayal by hospice. Mm-hmm. They, hospice has become a clearinghouse for the elderly. The elderly are called right. because it's cheaper to kill them than it is to care for them, and a lot of the people, you know, you said your mom had congestive heart failure. My mom had congestive heart failure, but she was being treated for it. She had medication. So there was mm-hmm. no need for them to end her life, but she was costing money. And she right. had gone over six months in her recertification, and they only get so much money per patient. She outlived her value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, that's a sick thing to say that we as a society do not value the sanctity of life. From cradle right. to grave, and and that's why, and going to the nursing home situation, why people aren't treated well in nursing homes because it's considered a, a it's it's still considered a warehouse to put elderly people out of the way, mm-hmm. and to get rid of them, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's why family members have to really be involved. <laughs> um, right, all the time. In and, the short- and you have to Google things. I mean, Google can be your friend. 
And, you know, my husband says I am analysis paralysis because if I start looking for something, you know, I'm down a rabbit hole doing all this research. But it's there. It's right at our fingertips. Google the drugs. Don't let them give your loved one any drug until you Google it. And it could seem simple, like an antibiotic, like Cipro is one of the antibiotics that's used that is has some terrible side effects from it, and you might be one where it doesn't affect, or you might be one where, you know, it affects your muscles and, you know, you wind up being wheelchair-bound. My Mm father-in-law was taking a medication, a beta blocker, which actually um, there's a blog out there, and a lot of people wind up having swollen ankles and swollen feet from it to the point that they can't walk. I mean, it's like having... um, neuropathy and they can't walk Mm -hmm. and he was given that drug now recently um his doctor has taken him off and in four days his swelling has started to go down so but you have to it could be any drug you need to test that drug out whether it's an antibiotic or a beta blocker or cholesterol medicine Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any difference what it is. You need to Google it, and you need to do the research on it. You cannot trust that your doctor is going to do all of that. They're not pharmacists, mm-hmm. and even if they are a pharmacist, they may not know that, you know, Mara, you might take something and it doesn't affect you. I might take it and break out in hives. Uh, you know, I'm right. allergic to blue cotton right. candy. Who would think, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so everybody's different. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, I I did notice earlier that area code 928, um, before we got cut off, before I got cut out, um, you had your hand up. I don't know if you have something you want to say. If you select one, I'll bring you on. Um, I know earlier, let me see, I want to bring you on and see. Okay, 928, did you have a comment you wanted to make earlier? Yes. Okay, you're live. Yeah, hey, hey, that, that, yeah. Let me get away from the TV to where we don't have that interference. Now, okay. Uh, sure. Recently, my mom was put into the hospital. She, she went in. She told me she just generally wasn't feeling well. And when when she went in, they hospitalized her. And this is something that all of your listeners need to be aware of. They put her in to the hospital for observation, and the hospitalist told me that she was going to be there for five days. I see, no, I see no reason for her to be in the hospital for five days if she's feeling well enough to go home. So um, at midnight, she called me in a panic and told me that these people were trying to murder her. They were trying to drug her. So I went over to the hospital to find out what was going on because the nurses would not take my call. And I get, I get over there, and she's in a full-blown panic attack. And this is not something that's ever happened with my mom before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I asked the nurse, you know, what's going on? Well, she's combative. She's uncooperative. We're trying to give her, I think it was called Sequinol, to put her, to knock her out and put her to sleep to where she was controllable. Mm-hmm. And I ah, said, no, this, right. is, this, 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 this is aberrant behavior for her. You need to find out what's causing it. I said, did, did the doctor order? Did the doctor order a urinalysis for her? Well, no, we don't think that's necessary. And I flat told her, I don't give a, I don't give a, you know what, what you think <laughs> is necessary. I want right. a urinalysis done. 
And they they right. told me it, you know it's not cost. They told me it's not cost effective to. You oh, need please. to get AMA paperwork now. Get the AMA paperwork right. now. She's going. She's going home. I took right. her to her primary care doctor the next day and explained what had happened. And he just does the major eye roll thing, and he says we're not even going to test her for a UTI. We're just going to put her on antibiotics. So he put right. a stat order with the pharmacy, and within two days she was totally back it to was normal. Better. Yeah, but yeah. that's not right either and, because because if you don't get to the root cause, I mean, she may or may not have had one. You can go to CVS, and there is a box, and it is A-Z-O, and it will test your urine. All they do is, you know, you get pee on the urine, and you can find determine whether or not they have a UTI, urinary tract infection. You can do that yourself to determine it. But just giving somebody antibiotics, I mean, I'm, and I'm glad that it worked for your mama. Um, so she, she was not given any other drug there that you know of. It was just because she had a UTI. Is that no, right? No, she, she has congestive heart. She has congestive well, no, heart but, failure. So when she went in, she had a, a lot of fluid on her chest, and they gave her um, the, the common water drug, Lasix. Lasix. Yeah, you know they they gave mm-hmm. they gave her that by injection, and you know it just it flabbergasts me that a hospital says it's not cost effective to run a minimal test on urine mm-hmm. to see yeah. if somebody has a urine. You know, with with and the that's one of the most like common. That. That's one of the most common reasons for the symptoms that you're describing. That, exactly, you know, uh, a UTI. Uh, very right. often you don't have physical symptoms. You have hallucinations. You have delusions. You, you know, you, you can fall. suddenly you're, yeah, suddenly you you're get different. Dizzy, you can fall. Sure, mm-hmm. you can break a bone, and then you know, it it it, it, it causes all kinds of aberrant behavior. It's something that's totally out of the norm for your loved one. Absolutely, that, you know, something Absolutely. that something that they would never do, and you know. People need to get out there and be involved with their family members and get yeah, that paperwork in place to where these hospitals can't do this to you. And, you know, don't be afraid to stand up to these doctors and don't certainly don't be afraid to stand up to the nurses. Absolutely. Don't be afraid to take them out of the hospital, AMA, and take them someplace else. You're absolutely right. Now, very, very good and, advice. And, and I would say that the same thing goes if your loved one is in a nursing home, that you need exactly, to yes. ask questions, you need to push the issue, you need to do all of those things that you just said. Um, one of the things, and it's not legal yeah. in every state, although there is a push to make it legal in every state, um, I put a camera in my mom's room because she was in Connecticut, and in the state of Connecticut, they can't stop you from doing that. So you just have to have a sign on the door that says there's a video surveillance in the room. Um, We were a little nervous about it because, you know, some staff members don't want to even go into a room that has a camera, but her regular caregivers said to us, why would I be afraid? I'm not doing the wrong thing. Why would I be afraid of going into a room with a camera? Um, That camera was extremely helpful. 
Um, nobody abused her, thankfully, in her case. But um, my mom absolutely did not want a male caregiver. And they kept sending male caregivers because they were so low-staffed. And, and it's a federal requirement that if a, a female resident of a nursing home says that she does not want a male caregiver, that they have to find somebody, a female, to go into her room. Um, yeah, my mom's the same way, and they, they, try, they, tried to, yep. they tried to get a, a man to give her a shower one time when she was in the hospital, and I was there. I just, you know, she doesn't want a man seeing her naked, and that, that's yeah, not going to happen. Yeah, and it's actually, it's law. It's the law that they're not, they, if, they, if your loved one does not want the opposite sex, gender, um, to take care of them, and, you know, in changing, showering, toileting, then um, they have a right to say no. And um, no, you know, absolutely, I they kept, do. And I kept yeah, catching I it on the camera. Yep, and I thought, and you know, the they knew that I knew. <laughs> you know, I I would send video tapes because it would catch clips. I would send video tapes to the director of nursing, and I would say there was a man there. He's bald. It was definitely a man. I could see that. Um, and, yeah, you know, another they, thing. Too, uh, another they, thing too with the camera. Mhm. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I say another thing. Uh, another thing too with having a camera in the room. You know, if your loved one falls, and the nursing home has no idea how that happened, then you know you get you get yeah. it on tape. And if it's yeah, negligent on their part, then you can go after them. You know, I, I used to drive um, for a transportation company when I lived in Tucson, and we picked people up from the nursing homes. And I cannot tell you how many times I went in there in the middle of winter. It's 30 degrees outside, 5 o'clock in the morning, and raining. And they try to send an 85-year-old woman out in the rain in a flimsy little nightdress with no blanket, no shoes, no sweater, nothing. I've seen nurses hit the patients. Wow. I've seen them put. I've seen them push them. I've mm-hmm. seen, I, you know, had them talk derogatory to these people. Right. Now, well, you, have, you, have, you have to be careful, and you have you have to stay on top of what's going on with your family members. Right. Of anything, yeah. anything. So, thank thank you for calling in. I'm gonna um, mute you and go back to Mara here. But thank you for calling in about your mom. That's thank a good you. point. Yes, thank ma'am. you. Th- th- yeah. Thanks for yeah. taking my call. Thanks. Um, okay. I do want to mention about family councils. Okay, go on. What's that? We're, we're talking. I do want to mention about family councils because that's a really powerful way to advocate for a loved one if they're in a nursing home or even in an assisted living facility. Yes. Well, you um, did that with a uh, lot with of your moms, right? I did, and you know when I first I first asked about a family council, I asked her social worker, is there a family council here? She said, oh, no, you don't need it. You don't need it because we stopped it during COVID, and you don't need it because if you have a problem, you could just talk to me. <laughs> well, no, that's not, that is not what a family council is about. And, yes, 
um, there are reasons why family members might not be able to get together in the same room, not just because of COVID, but many family members live in opposite sides of the country, like myself. I'm in Texas. So I looked it up, and I found out that a lot of family councils went virtual. So I got in touch with the ombudsman's office of the state of Connecticut, which every state has has an ombudsman program. It's a national, it's a national thing. It's federal, um, but each state has their own office, and they're the ones who are the liaison between you and the nursing home if there's a problem. They know all the laws. They get involved in abuse cases, all of that kind of stuff. But they also had a statewide family council who advised me how to start a local family council so that I knew how to do it, how to get the word out, what the laws were. Um, It's a federal law that if you want to start a family council, the nursing facility has to... has to contact the family members of everyone in the nursing home to let them know. They have to send out an email to everybody. And if you want to do it in person, they have to provide you a space. So they are required to do that. Is that because of the HIPAA? That's federal. Is that that because of HIPAA, or is that just to let them know that it exists so that they can join if they want to? To let them know that it exists so they can join. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. um, in, a, in a nursing home, if family members want to join a family council, they could just join. It, does, it doesn't even have to be a family member. It could be a close friend. Not everybody has a, a family member who's their advocate. They could have a close friend who's this advocate, right? Um, right, exactly. It could be a lifelong yeah, everybody friend. Doesn't have, everybody doesn't have family that can take care of them, you know, or, or even exactly. come and visit to check on them and to make sure that, you know, they're okay or, you know, bring them a milkshake or, you know, whatever. Right. So some people just volunteer and, you know, become friends with the people in the nursing homes, not for any nefarious yeah. reason, but because they're just kind right. people. And some people so that's good. have, you know, close, have close friends that, you know, want to mm-hmm. want to help them. So. You don't have to be related to the person in the nursing home to join a family council. Um, assisted living is a little bit different. I just learned this, that um, to join a family council in assisted living because in assisted living the resident is its like a, their own home, they have to actually sign a permission slip saying that this person can join a family council and talk about them. But in a nursing home, that doesn't exist. You can just join a family council. Um, The goal of the family council is all for the higher quality of life for, for your loved one and for all of the residents of the facility. You're not there for any nefarious reason. You're not there for yourself. You're there for bringing about a higher quality of life. So it's well, a way to support be, each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they would know because, say, like you have somebody there who, um, you know, she's not eating and the nurse isn't doing anything or nobody does anything about it and you just see her day after day sitting at the table, you know, with her 
facing the plate or, you know, not talking to mm-hmm. anybody or something. And then you would want somebody else to, you know, to speak up and try to get that person some help. So right. there's all kind of circumstances. Well, that's the other or, thing. Go ahead. Yeah, that's the other thing. We, you know, I live far away. I'm in another state. Um, there were family members on the family council who were there every day because they lived close by. And I could ask them, did you, you know, did you see my mother in the dining room? How did she look today? Did we, You know, people helped each other out like that. Um, oh, I'll go ask your mother how she's doing or I'll see if she's eating. Um, so we all kind of helped each other out. You know, the, right. we became like a family to each other. Absolutely. Um, um, the other thing, you know, besides the... But we also the, got some... Go on. So, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I know that... I there's a slight delay. There is a delay, and, you know, but no, go yeah. ahead. I'll say what I'll say in a minute. Go ahead. Well, well, one of the other things that we did as a family council, and it's still continuing, someone else took over after my mom passed, and I felt like I couldn't facilitate it anymore, um, is that we got the facility, which did not have a grievance process. That had, They had an old grievance process that kind of fell through the cracks. We got them to to create a new grievance process. Like what do we do if we have a real grievance and we have a complaint that we want to go to a higher level? By law, they have to do that. We let them know that we know that. We let them know that we know that they're not following the law. And they created a grievance process within a month of us asking for it. We oh, that's also good. asked for, yeah, and we also asked for a process to have better compliance to the individual care plans that we 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 meet with the staff uh, quarterly. You can meet, but you can ask for a meeting anytime you want to meet with the staff. You come up with a care plan. And then the caregivers aren't following it. What's the point? So we right. wanted better compliance with the care plan because we knew that they were not following it, and we had evidence that they were not following it. And they, the care plan usually consists of things that just make your life higher quality. Like my mom wanted to be brought back from the dining room between meals so she could watch TV, have the phone in front of her, have her um, her bottle of water, have uh, her remote for the TV, and she didn't want to watch what people were watching in the little living living room area. She wanted to watch her own shows. She had the phone numbers of all of us on the wall. That's what she wanted. That was on the care. That was on the care plan. But I would look on the camera and I would see why is my why didn't my mom come back between breakfast and lunch? Mm-hmm. And then when I would talk my, to her later, she would complain. They they kept me sitting at the dining room table by myself wow. between meals. So we not, wanted better compliance. That's negligence. That's negligence. Um, the other thing with the group that you're talking about, you can do things anonymously so they don't know which yes. Um, yes. resident it is. Exactly. So that they don't get, you know, retaliated against because that, you know, face it, yes. we all know that happens. Exactly. 
And the other thing that You're, I um, had heard absolutely. is that rooms would be really super, super hot or super, super cold. And that's, you know, if you like your room, you know, most elderly people get very cold. And if you're in a room that's very, very cold or very stifling hot, I mean, it can make you sick and you're absolutely miserable. And that's something Mm -hmm. that that group, you know, can facilitate and help other residents. Absolutely. Um, When when I I wrote the letter, uh, uh, every month we would send a letter out with requests to the administration, and I would have it signed by the fam. You know, this is from the family council. They don't know who's in it. They knew I. I they knew I was in it. <laughs> they knew I was the only one they knew was in it. I, I'm the one who took the risk, but everybody else was anonymous. And when they would send an email back directed to me, I would say, I just want you to know, I wrote the letter. But it was I, I sent you the letter, but it was written by the whole family council. Mhm. So right. um well, you know, people and there's strength are and numbers. being retaliated against. There's right. strength, and there's strength and numbers. and numbers. So the Absolutely. other um, thing that I want to mention is every state has a right to life group. Uh, typically it's called right to life. But if you go to just, you know, Google in Right to Life, it will bring up um, a website that you can look at and find your states. And some of them are called a little bit different than Right to Life. But in that state, in the website, they should have, you know, most of them talk about abortion. When we think about Right to Life, we talk about abortion, infanticide. But they don't get to the opposite end of that. The elderly people that are being abused, neglected, and euthanized against their will. We're not talking about somebody who goes in and says, you know, I want to commit suicide, uh, medical aid and dying. People are being euthanized under the guise of compassionate care with hospice. So if you look at your right to life group in your state, they should have something about hospice, elderly, abuse, euthanasia. And if they don't, you need to ask them why they don't. Because it should be from cradle to grave. And, you know, if more people that do that in each one of your states, a representative, then you can make it happen. We can make change happen. We just have to take action. And I think that people feel, I'm just one person, I can't take action. Yes, you can. Well, I, I really, I, I think what you just said is very important, and that is the what the person wants. I mean, some people really do feel like uh, the, I've had enough, I'm in a lot of pain, I don't want to go on anymore. That's their choice. I don't want to take that choice away from them. But somebody has said, I want to live, nobody else should be making that choice for them. Um, no. And in fact, I, some... Somebody, the guest who is going to be on my show next um, Sunday, she sent me an email just today. She's in Canada, and there's an article in Canada they're actually doing assisted suicide. Um, And the person who wrote the article said, you know, at the beginning I was on board with it because, you know, if somebody's in pain and they want to die, I'm okay with that freedom. But it turns out that they're making decisions for people 
again, they're not, they're, it, the person themselves is not necessarily it's, choosing. Exactly. And um, come March, which is this week, starting in March in Canada, they can euthanize people that have mental disorders. So that's they don't even get to well, choose. Yeah. The mental people, they will make a choice for them and decide, well, they're mentally handicapped, so they, sh- they don't want to live. They shouldn't live, and they make that decision for them. And nobody has the right to make that decision. And we go back to the value of your life, and that is up to the individual person. And a mentally disabled person, if you tell them to put something in front of their face, here, sign this, they're going to sign it. That's a slippery slope. Then all of a sudden you have, you know, we're getting rid of mentally ill. How are we any different than what happened in Auschwitz? where, well, you know, decision was yeah. made for people, and they just called them and took them out. So here I'm reading this article, and it says that if somebody's depressed and they don't want to live anymore, they will help them commit suicide. I mean, I'm appalled because my yeah. job Who is, is a the psychologist. Per- who's the is, person that's coming on? Um, her name is um, Dr. Patricia... Bendel. Okay. I just I wondered, um, she, Alex Schattenberg, she, have you ever heard of him? No. Okay. No. Well, he has the Euthanasia Coalition in Canada. So I, I would imagine well, The person who sent me the article, the person who sent me the article is against us. <laughs> She's not... She said, I want you to see what's happening in Canada. It's very scary. He's against euthanasia. Um, oh, he's against, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, so is Alex yeah. Shadberg. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. He is strongly, a, I'll, send you, I'll send you his um, she, website. She is an so you have it. But I know years. they had, um, I had Angelina Ireland on, and she was with um, Delta Hospice in Canada, and they had, I think, 10 beds, and they came to them and told them that they had to agree to euthanize their patients that were in hospice if, if they wanted it, you know, that they had to do that. And they said, we are a pro-life organization, and we don't kill people, and we, we can't mm-hmm. do that. They shuttered them, took their building, took their facilities, and shut them down because they would not wow. kill their patients. And, you know, there's a thing, do no harm. So you're asking a doctor to make a decision to do harm. Um, Ending somebody's life is, you know, the end. You can't come back from that. Well, you know, what horrifies me in um, in this article is that talking about, you know, somebody who is, um, depressed and wants to commit suicide, helping them commit suicide. Um, my whole job is a, not my whole job, big part of my job as a psychologist is to help people to see that suicide is not the answer. It's a permanent problem, permanent solution to a temporary problem. Right. And if they can feel better, killing themselves is not the solution. Um, right, exactly. I, 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 I fear that, that that is going to change and my, I will be in the minority saying that. 
Well, but I would imagine that you deal, you know, dealing with veterans, geriatric veterans, that you run across that. Um, you I know, deal with veterans that... of all. Of, yeah, I deal with veterans of all ages, and right. um, you know, many have attempted suicide. Many are still having thoughts about suicide. So we talk about it quite a bit. But mm-hmm. my whole thing is convincing them that. Um, they can feel better and that they don't have life. to kill themselves. Yeah. 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 So we have, um, we're, we're at the end. We have one minute left. And okay. I want to thank you so much for coming on and for joining me and for all of our listeners that were listening then and will be listening in the future. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us. And on March the 10th, I'm actually going to be on Dr. Amara Carpell's program. She runs on Sunday. So we will be having another discussion then, I'm sure. Yes. Similar to this, and, but a little different. And people can will be able to see the link on my website. So can I give them my website? Yes. Yes, it's drmaracarpell.com. D-R-M-A-R-A-K-A-R-P-E-L.com. Right. So thank you so much for coming on this evening. I appreciate it. And um, hopefully some of our uh, listeners garnered some information that can help you improve your loved one's life or your life and certainly save a life or two in the future. That's our goal is to help people, whatever age they are, but, you know, mostly the elderly. So thank you so much, Mara. And Thank you for our listeners for coming on tonight, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Good night, everybody. All right, thank you. Okay, have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, Saver. Whether you're saving for that trip to the tropics or saving for an emergency, now is the time to take advantage of Wells Fargo Savings Options. Wells Fargo offers savings accounts that can help you save towards your goals. So, what are you saving for? Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com save to open a savings account today. Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Fargo, the new virtual assistant from Wells Fargo, makes banking faster and easier. Like this. Fargo, what's my checking account routing number? And this. Fargo, uh, turn off my debit card. And this. Fargo, what did I spend on groceries last month? And that's just the beginning. Do you, Fargo? You can. In the Wells Fargo mobile app. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash getfargo. Terms and conditions apply. Your mobile carrier's availability and message and data rates may apply. Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., member FDIC.